The Supreme Court rules slots are subject to a vote. Jennifer Bruner says John Husted lives in Upper Arlington and payday lenders are still getting paid. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at CoSide, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Daryl Rowland, Public Affairs Editor for the Columbus Dispatch. Julie Carr-Smythe, Statehouse Correspondent for the Associated Press. Terry Casey, Republican Strategist. And Greg Haas, Democratic Strategist. For weeks, the Strickland administration said it was confident its plan to put slot machines at racetracks was on solid legal footing. They would win, they said. The racetracks would be able to install 17,000 slot machines to attract gamblers, save the state's horse racing industry, and generate $900 million for the state treasury. Court In a 6-to-1 vote, the justices said the move could go to the ballot, and Racino opponents are now busy trying to collect... Crux of the argument had to do with whether or not this was a referendum, but the court threw that out and they said, you know, you have to go back to the law that is, that is the basis for that and that this was not an appropriation. So appropriation is an actual how we're going to spend the money or how, how we're going to raise the money. Right. right? And so it yeah. would be a line item. Well, we are going to generate this money. It's got a devoted line item that is going to education, which is what it says. But, they, but the court ruled that that was not strong enough. His problem wasn't so much this case, which a lot of people thought maybe the state would win. It's the next two cases before the Ohio Supreme Court on the constitutionality and was it done correctly. And actually the governor, part of his complication is this is money, if they don't get that $933 million, that would come out of the schools K through 12 because the general fund would still be okay. And the problem for the governor is he just can't cut money from the general fund and shift it over to education without first getting approval by the legislature. So it sounds like the court separated the device to find the money from the actual spending of the money. Basically, is that what they've done here? Right, and the, um, I think in addition to that, the state separated. I mean, he authorized the slots using an executive order and then the legislature sort of blessed it, if you will. And it was that piece, it was the blessing that the legislature had written up that was shot down. So what are his options now? Daryl? Well, it's too late to uh, say he doesn't want to run for re-election, I guess. So. <laughs> uh, it's not good. Um, frankly, first of all, we should say that the Republicans are providing no help because they're sort of saying, we told you so, even though many of them provided the votes to pass this thing, put it into law. They're saying, you wanted slots, you got them, you get us out of this. Um, simple, cut, raise other revenue, taxes, or find some way, another way to get slots implemented, maybe solely through an executive order, which the state in its legal briefs argued the governor did have. The part that the legislature did was something the administration wanted, but they're saying was, were not legally required. And now, politically, that's another question. And one of the options the governor has is to say, okay, let's come together with a plan. And it might be wait till after November 3rd and see whether or not the casino, the four casino thing passes, which might be an indicator of, hey, the public is more supportive of this. And then you come back with a May issue that might be racetrack slots, it might be at other locations. There's other ways to raise the money. So the governor's not out of 
options, but he is between a rock and a hard place. If he does something too quick, it offends the court. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that there's two there's two huge wild, wild cards still out there. Whether or not these guys actually do get on the ballot, um, which I think most of us would bet that they will, but but that's still a hurdle that they've got to get they over. They need about 240,000 registered voters' signatures, which means they have to collect about a half a million signatures. Right, and, and, and they're not, it, it, it does not appear that this is a hugely funded um, um, uh, operation, and that, that's one of the things that do help a lot of the casino issues uh, when they've got a lot of money to pay people to circulate. Uh, um, but um, the second wild card uh, uh, that Terry alluded to is, is what happens in terms of the casino ballot issue in November. And, and I think that, that as, the, as the governor is putting together his plan um, and, and what he's going to do, he's really got to see what happens on those two, two big wild cards. On the casino issue, the, the pro and against the, the four casino plan in the, in the major cities, we know who the opponents and the supporters are, basically gambling interest on each side. Julie, who is Let Ohio Vote? Um, Let Ohio Vote on paper is three individuals. It's uh, it's Gene Pierce, uh, who used to work for Ken Blackwell. We should say LetOhioVote.org is the opponents who push this right. to the, sl the slot machine issue to the ballot. Go ahead. He's, uh, Gene's represented a lot of folks, but one of them has been Ken Blackwell, who ran for governor last time. Um, We've got David Hansen, who was associated in the past with Buckeye Institute. We've got Tom Brinkman, who's a conservative former state rep and senator. Um, interestingly, they're not all gambling opponents. Tom Brinkman has been on the record as being okay with racetrack slots proposals in the past. So it really is going to be the question of, uh, you know, who is going to be behind this. There was an affidavit rejected by the court that was submitted in this case that uh, suggested that Tom Brinkman had told another senator that Penn National was behind it. The gambling company. Right. Uh, some, something that Penn adamantly denied. Um, so it'll be interesting, I think, in terms of signature gathering, they'll probably get a lot of money from, or support at least, from other anti-gambling folks. But the Let Ohio Vote people, they've got money. At the Supreme Court hearing, they had like five or six attorneys from the most expensive law firm anywhere in Ohio, including the lead guy at 800 an hour. They've got the money. So who's They're, paying them? Uh, I've been told who's paying them. And, it's, uh, and one thing that's telling, Monday, Gene Pearson, I know Gene well, he very carefully said to the news media, we're not opposed to gambling because they know ultimately it'll be found out where their money's coming from and they don't want to appear to be hypocritical. So, so it might be other gambling interests. A, a, a gambling issue that might be hypocritical. I, I can't believe <laughs> it. I, the, the potential of that is just uh, hard to fathom. To go I mean, to, the, to the budget side, we have basically a $900 million hole if there are no slots. If there are slots a year from now, there's $400 million hole, give or take. Does this mean we see a tax increase put on the table? No. Um, I think for, for several reasons, and, and I think, first of all, I think the governor has clearly fought as hard as uh, anyone could um, uh, to resist a tax increase, and, and, and I think, you know, and I think he's, in, in many cases, he's been unfairly put in a position, you know, there were, there were a few articles contrasting the Columbus tax increase with the state tax increase, which is completely unfair. I mean, the, the demographics of Columbus are far different. But there's a much bigger issue. And I think, and, and frankly, and, and, and again, it's just it's my Ohio chauvinism that'll come out here a little bit. But it, it, to me, it's bigger than the budget. It's bigger than everything. You cannot raise taxes in Ohio right now because there is no hope. 
And, and if, if people, um, um, and, and in the state of Ohio right now, we, we are, you know, we, we're counting on Terrell Pryor to save our pride, you know? I mean, we're counting on the Ohio State, we're putting all the pressure on the Ohio State football team to be uh, the, the people who make, make us feel good about being in Ohio again. So Terry, the Republicans are second guessing this. They're the ones gonna propose a sales tax increase, right? Or a no, income tax rollback? No, they're not. I mean, the big thing out of Bill Harris, and I was shocked uh, he was as blunt as he was, but he remembers when he tried to tell the governor, why don't we put it on this November's ballot and let the people decide? And then once the governor did it, he said, I own it. And so they're going to give him all the credit for however this works out because they feel we tried to tell you another way to do it. You wouldn't listen. But Bill, Bill Harris's Senate, Republican Senate, endorsed this plan. Well, there only were six votes out of the 21 Republican senators. So but it was one of the things that, that Harris said in the midst of that debate was he said, the governor has the authority to do this executively. He always has. He did it with Keno. He can do it with this. Now, I would think that if the governor turns around and does that, that the Senate would need, based on that statement, to perhaps repeal the unconstitutional language out of the budget so that there isn't an issue in 2010. And of course, Greg referred to w the wild cards. We still have the two bigger picture court challenges, if you will. Yeah. Um, the most fundamental one, can this be construed, no matter who does it, as an expansion of the Ohio lottery? If the state loses that, it's game over. You have to go on the ballot no matter what. Now, there's some interesting legal debate going on now as to whether that issue gets heard now by the Supreme Court because the issue that brought to the Supreme Court in the first place is now in abeyance, has now been stayed. So there's a lot of confusion, a lot of miles to go here. Okay, we should mention we are taping this week on Thursday, and this story has tended to be a Friday afternoon story. <laughs> yeah. So things that might have changed by the time we actually get this on the air, but that's the plan as of Thursday. Our second topic, State Senator John Husted cannot vote for himself anymore. Secretary of State Jennifer Bruner says the Dayton area lawmaker does not live in the Dayton area where he is registered. The Democrat says the Republican lawmaker actually lives in Upper Arlington. Houston says Kettering is his primary residence and he only lives in his wife's Upper Arlington home to make it easier to work in Columbus. He has appealed this decision to the Ohio Supreme Court. Darrell Rowland, can you explain the legal reasoning behind Jennifer Bruner's ruling? Well, the beautiful thing about the legal reasoning here is uh, regardless of which side rules what there is, basis in Ohio law to back your side up, because Ohio law is not clear at all on this matter, at least in my opinion. Uh, Jennifer Bruner relied heavily on the section of law that defines residency as where your spouse lives. Um, she looked at evidence gathered during the investigation uh, of Senator Husted's residence over in Kettering, suburban Dayton. Uh, no water usage, very little electricity usage. He has his mail forwarded to Columbus. Um, he lives over here, his kids go to school over here. Um, everything is oriented toward Columbus. Now, of course, Senator Husted looks at another section of the law, um, saying if you're in state service and you intend to return, you know, very vague, ambiguous, some would say requires mind-reading phrase, um, says, hey, Supreme Court, look at that part of the law and say, you know, I still live in Dayton, mm -hmm. legally. Now, yeah. I mean, where does he actually live? He lives in Upper Arlington, let's be you know, let's be blunt about yeah. that. It's just where his legal residence under yeah. Ohio law is, is what we're arguing about. And the pickup on the gaming uh, terminologies all kind of trump you with a couple ace cards. 
called the Ohio Constitution, and it happens to be uh, Section 2, Article 3, and it's fairly clear in saying that legislators must first live in their district, but once they're elected, if they're absent on public business, uh, of this state, in essence, it gives them a pass. And there's a lot of legislators today who have houses and residences here in Columbus. And the reality is lots of people don't live seven days a week in their district, particularly if you're as busy in state government as somebody like he has been. It's similar to what Alaska congressperson having a condo in D.C. They probably don't get that, get back to Alaska. Well, they probably do when Congress isn't in session. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think there's a different. I mean, th there's several hours difference in terms of travel yeah. time, and 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 uh, both. Uh, I mean, we're talking about a, a city that's a little over an hour away, um, and state business uh, is 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 not a 24/7 kind of kind of thing. I mean, I, I think uh, as Daryl said, you know, there's two sections, and, and and which section do you want to look at? Um, I think there's a bigger issue here, which this is another example of how gerrymandered these districts are, and the fact that you don't even have to live in the district to hold the seat um, it really speaks to um, uh, the, the problems we have in Ohio with, with the way in which we draw legislative districts. You don't have to serve your district, you don't have to live there uh, to hang on to the seat. Well, and it, it also should be noted that uh, this, uh, even though Bruner and, and Houston are having a political sparring match uh, over a lot of things right now, and he wants the seat that she's in right now in 2010, um, this was not really her doing per se. I mean, he has taken a lot of heat from the local media about the fact that he doesn't actually live there. As he ascended in his power, he sort of was seen as kind of abandoning that residence. The Montgomery County Board of Elections tied on it, and so she it's her job to yeah. decide. Ultimately, it was the Board of Elections that has decided that she just broke the tie. And we, we should point out, this does not affect his status right now, anyhow, no. of the state Senate seat. The Senate sets the rules. Um, however, he does have to circulate a petition asserting he's a registered elector at some place to run for Secretary of State. So that's number one. If he doesn't get statewide office, wants to run again in the Senate, you do have to resign your district for a year, I believe, under the Ohio Constitution. Right, but I'll jump in with a little bit of a prediction. Jennifer Bruner's not had a good track record at the Ohio Supreme Court, whether it's the thing she did as the first day as Secretary of State, which the Supreme Court said you're wrong to take back a bill and try and have a new governor reverse it. She, in the 15th district, got knocked down by both the Ohio Supreme Court, Sixth Circuit. Monday's decision really wasn't against Ted Strickland. It was against Jennifer Bruner for failing to accept people's ability and right to put something on the ballot. So her record for the Ohio Supreme Court has not been very good. Well, we made a point earlier to, uh, that, that Jennifer Bruner is a Democrat. Let's also point out that seven of the members of the Ohio Supreme Court are Republicans. Was Jennifer, Greg, was Jennifer Bruner in a no-win situation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean she I, had to rule against him you to could, you in her could run tell, for the U.S. Senate. You could tell that she didn't want to deal with this. I mean, this has been, this has drug on for a long time, and, 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 and I, I think she got a lot of pressure, ultimately, from Montgomery County to deal with it. It, it isn't the kind of issue, I mean, she knows that, that, that politically, um, whatever the ramifications of this uh, are for him, they're not worth uh, the, the, the same uh, level of trouble it is for her. Uh, uh, to, to uh, be spending time on this right now. And partly to defend Jennifer, it's good politics when you're running for the U.S. Senate in a Democrat primary. You want to show the Democrats you're a good, loyal Democrat. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that she leaves the U.S. Senate race and decides to run for re-election for Secretary of State. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. <laughs> Whether it's likely or not, I don't know. 
what does what would that what, let's take a step ahead. What would this do now that she's ruled against her c possible competitor? Well, I, I, I'll start by saying I, I want to em emphasize that I believe it is highly unlikely okay. that, that that happens, but it would be a lot of fun. I mean, <laughs> and, know, and no it would be yeah. almost as much fun as watching these casino fights, you know? And, I mean, yeah. and, and in 2006, Ken Blackwell had to rule in a residency issue against Ted Strickland, and, you know, he was the Secretary of State at the time and called a, a hearing, as it turned out, the and hearing got called off at the last minute. By the way, Ken Blackwell didn't try and say Ted Strickland couldn't vote for himself for governor, even though he was living in a little rented room with no bathroom and no kitchen in Lisbon, Ohio, when he owned a condo with his wife here in Columbus. So Should John Houston have rented well, he here in Columbus <laughs> instead of owned at home? <laughs> no. but is this another argument why the Secretary of State should perhaps not be an elected political position? Well, in some ways, I was 14 years on a board of elections. We've had these issues before. The law is a little vague and unclear, but part of that in today's highly mobile world, not everybody moves into one house and lives there the rest of their life. So yeah. it, it's a little complicated in terms of when people are working in government and they can be here and they can be there. I, 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 I very much agree with that. And I think Daryl mentioned earlier the, the reference to the spouse and where the spouse lives. You know, the implication is that that's the homemaker who stays at home right. all the time and not, not somebody who might have a career someplace else or be doing, you know, um, be involved in, 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 in something. And I think we need to kind of update uh, the way we look at a lot of this. I mean, well, I think that's clear. Though this law, these competing sections, need to be cleaned up and, and made consistent. Um, but this idea of a nonpartisan secretary of state—that's something both John Houston and Jennifer Bruner support. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our third topic: a year after Ohio voters clearly said they wanted payday lenders to stop charging high interest rates on short-term loans, some in the industry have found creative ways around the law. Some companies are charging higher fees instead of higher interest rates, and other stores are issuing the loans in checks and then charging customers fees to cash those checks. Ohio lawmakers are now considering a bill to stifle that creativity and lower the cost of those short-term loans. Greg Haas, you worked against the payday lenders last year, mm -hmm. 2008. Yep. Um, this was inevitable that, that bankers would find a loophole, lawyers would find a loophole, do you think? Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think ultimately, I mean, there's, there's a couple of important things to, to make. First of all, the number of these payday lenders are about cut in half yeah. from where they were. And secondly, and one of the things that, that's great about politics is that, you, you know, I mean, you can at times kind of uh, in conjunction with the media get a message out that, 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 that impacts behavior in lots of ways. And it, it appears that there's been a, an incredibly, even as bad as the economy's been, the demand at these, these facilities has dropped fairly significantly. And I think in large part that's due to the media and, 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 and maybe the campaign too, uh, really pounding away what a ripoff uh, these places are and how many hidden um, uh, fees there are and, and what a trap ultimately uh, this is all about. So th those are two good products. But the biggest thing, there is legislation and there's legislation that can move forward. Uh, when, when, when they find time uh, on the legislative schedule to fix uh, the loopholes and, 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 and to really uh, to make it a crime to try and circumvent the law. Did the campaign to limit these interest rates that you helped out on, did it, did it anticipate these kind of loopholes? Could you, put, could you have prevented fees from being a higher raise? I think that, you know, in, in retrospect, you certainly could have uh, uh, applied some kind of criminal 
penalty for, for circumventing the law uh, as, as part of this uh, initially, and that, that probably could have been done in the legislative process before. But I think ultimately, um, you know, they're going to try something, and, yep. and they'll try something else, and you just got to stay ahead of them. The good thing on this payday lending thing, it was about a legislative matter. If this was a constitutional amendment, it's harder to fix loopholes. So this one is, in a way, a little harder or a little easier to fix. And actually, disagree a little bit with Greg, some of the bankers actually wanted the payday lenders put out of business because that cuts into some of their potential business, not all of it. But there were interesting coalitions because there were Democrats in the legislature opposing some of this because they viewed in some of their communities payday lenders were helpful to people that couldn't get money otherwise. Especially the ones that own a payday lender. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and we have to remember, too, that that bill that went up for uh, a vote was um, you know, it was as strong as it could be at that time and where the political will was. And so every time you, you pass something that massive, there are going to be loopholes and things you don't anticipate. But Terry, I got to jump in on the banking thing. I tell you, we tried hard to raise money from the banks based on the argument that, that they might want these places closed down. They don't, they don't want that business. I mean, the banks really don't want yeah, that, that business. That's my, there was all kinds of predictions, Dale, that others would step into this marketplace, whether it be banks or nonprofits. It's only been a year. I mean, it's still relatively right. young, but that really hasn't happened. Yeah, I think things are still shaking out as, you know, some of this is a little bit of water flowing downhill as, as people seek the loopholes and then the new, as you put, creative methodologies here, too. And hey, banks get to keep charging their fees, raising their all their fees, too. That's the argument that the payday lenders make that, you know, so the fees are higher and, you know, we charge for the check cashing, but it's still not as high as a bounce check cost, someone who doesn't have a whole lot of money. And what's the difference? Well, the, there's, there's a the gigantic difference. And first of all, and, and, and you can document these, there is a, a structure within the payday lending industry to entrap people and to build these chains of events uh, so that the object is not just to, to collect the, you know, the 300% interest um, on, on, on the turnaround. It is to entrap that person so they're coming back week after week after week to pay off the last loan with another loan Sounds and like a the, bigger and a bigger you know, loan. What the, what the banks are in trouble now with these debit cards and getting $30 for the overdraft protection. And but we, you know, I mean, it's the same way with the credit card companies. Your minimum payment doesn't begin to pay your, your uh, total bill and, and keeps you going back every month. And, you know, it's, it's a business. Okay. Real quick, Democrats have complained Republicans have not come up with their own ideas for solving the state's budget crisis and creating jobs. Now the House Republicans have come out with a plan. It gives tax breaks to businesses that hire unemployed people and tax credits to people, to students who stay in Ohio after college. Terry, how can we afford this with no money? Well, the problem in Ohio, if you look at the unemployment map, it's pretty bad. If you talk to people, Ohio is not viewed. I had lunch with somebody today who had been in a meeting with the head of Dell Computers and asked, would you come to Ohio? They don't view Ohio as attractive to business in terms of the regulatory and the labor union aspects of this state. So Ohio's got to improve its competitiveness and particularly on small business because there are small businesses that started in Columbus like Les Wexter and the limited stores that grow. If you don't have small business growing, it's hard to grow the jobs for the future. I think Good. I heard this speech five years ago when Republicans cut income taxes 21%. And you know, when we instituted tort reform and malpractice reform and 
you know, what, I mean, I, I'm not taking anybody's side, but where does it end? I mean, why is Ohio still regarded as non-competitive on a factual basis as opposed to an image basis? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, there's plenty of states with, with stronger union laws and stronger regulations than us that are doing fine right now. I mean, I want to go back because I talked about it earlier. Ohio has got to get its swagger back. I mean, and, and that's something that, that Jim Rhodes was great at and Dick Celeste was great at. And, and I, the governor has not been in a position to, to, to do that because, uh, frankly, um, we have sunk so low. Okay. Uh, I got to get to off the record comments from our panel. Final thoughts, predictions for the weeks ahead. Daryl Rowland, you're up first. Um, I think uh, legislators will get a little present that, uh, that will cause them to take another look at sexual offender laws in this state here in the next few days. A case will arise. Um, there'll be something put in the public arena. Okay. <laughs> Pick up your Columbus Dispatch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Julie Carsmith. Geez, I was going to go out on a limb and say um, the uh, governor will uh, get some action started in the legislature on this slots uh, compromise. Okay. Uh, I brought along a little toy train because that might be about all Ohio can afford for so-called high-speed rail. The reality is if you looked at the plan, the latest departure from Cleveland, if you went up for the Indians, the Browns, or was up on Saturday for the Ohio State game, the last train out of Cleveland would have been 3.30 p.m., which doesn't work very well if you're going to go up there to the game. So I predict the trains crash and don't happen. Okay. Greg, real quick. Uh, real quick, I think that there's going to be, um, with, with the growing list of Franklin County statewide candidates, and now we've got uh, Upper Arlington's own John Husted uh, on the ballot <laughs> with everybody else, that, that other counties, are, there's going to be a backlash to, uh, to too much Franklin County presence. All right. That's Columbus on the record for this week. You can continue the discussion at our website. A question this week, should the slots plan go on the ballot? Register your opinion at WOSU.org. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. <laughs>